Welcome to Testers Island Discs, your most musical guide to software testing. My name is Mark Winteringham and I'll be your castaway companion. Hello and welcome to episode 31 of Testers Island Discs with uh, me, Mark Winteringham. Uh, today I am joined by Joao Prenzer. Um, he's a man of many roles. He's uh, been a developer, customer support. Uh, he's worked in ops, uh, marketing. He's known to do a little bit of testing every now and then, but uh, we're going to dig into that in more detail. And also he's a musician as well. Seems to be quite a few musician testers uh, joining this podcast. I wonder why. Um, at the moment, he's a quality owner or a quality strategist, which we're going to talk at length about. Um, welcome, Joao. Hi, really glad to be here. Good to have you on. Yeah. So, uh, yes, let's talk about the important stuff first. You're a musician. What do you play? Yeah, so I'm mostly a guitar player, even though uh, one of the things that over the years have re has really, really interested me has been songwriting. So essentially, when I was younger, when I was in, in my teens, I started learning how to play guitar. Then I got to, to high school, started playing in bands. And after a while, uh, I started doing some things on my own. Um, so uh, that the, the guitar thing became a lot of other things as well, because I started writing songs. I started singing, even though I'm not like the greatest singer in the world. I At some point, I figured that uh, I didn't, I just didn't have to be a bad singer <laughs> uh, in order to be able to record my own stuff. And once I, I got past that, I started recording it and created my own musical alter ego called Marty Was Right and put some songs and an album out there. Yes. So you're, I think you're the first person to use Tester Island Discs as a means to uh, plug your own work, which um, I kind of admire actually a little bit. I wish I'd thought of that with uh, my stuff in the past. It's <laughs> a smart move. Yeah. Um, so purely just for my own geekery, uh, what guitars do you have? Well, um, I even though I've played the guitar a lot, <laughs> I don't own a lot of guitars. And one of them, I own it, but I don't know exactly where it is right now because I <laughs> lent it to someone. And then that person lent it to someone else. And I don't know. I, I should have oh, no. a, a GPS tracker on that guitar. <laughs> yeah, you you know? But essentially, I have two guitars. I have an acoustic guitar from Fender. Um, and I have an electrical guitar from Yamaha. But it's basically like... a a tuned up guitar where, where the, the body is from Yamaha, but everything else is from different uh, brands. So, and it was like a limited edition. So it, it looks pretty cool. And I think it's badass. Oh, very nice. Um, I don't think you need that many guitars. I think you just need one that you feel comfortable with. Yeah. That makes you want to write. Um, so I've, I have a lovely Paul Reed Smith um, that I have managed to sort of push like mentions of it into uh, previous talks about automation. Yeah, yeah. I, I actually, the first time I saw you speaking was at Agile, Agile Testing Days a couple of years ago, and you did brought up the PRS guitar on, yes. on your talk. Yeah, I yeah, remember I should, I should totally share the link that I referenced to that because uh, it's like, um, so for those who are not aware of this, I did a talk uh, talking about automation and its role in testing, but um, I was influenced by a video in which um, you watched how Paul Reed Smith guitars were made. Um, and it was really fascinating to see how it worked. So I'll definitely uh, dig that out and stick that in the reference below. Yeah. But yeah, I think like, obviously we, we've chatted a little bit before this, but you've spoken a bit about sort of music and its influence on testing. And it's something I, I've personally sort of felt there's a, a connection to as well. But how have you found like 
like music projects have helped you in in terms of progressing in testing and well um this was actually uh so uh, earlier in august this year i gave a, a talk at cast about how different roles throughout my career have influenced me as a tester there there were two main items on that end when it comes to music uh even though i wasn't like a professional musician it had an impact on me um the first is, is that when you're recording and composing um uh, songs on your own there's a lot of testing involved and there's there's this very uh, known industry thing called the crappy car stereo test <laughs> that's that tells you that i mean if you're in your computer or in a recording studio if you can afford that and you're like um recording your song and making sure everything is perfect you should never ever forget to take that song into a crappy car with a crappy car stereo and see how it sounds in such a setup and that that's that's like testing you know it's it's like um how you should test things from uh, from the perspective of your your user base and with the limitations that your users are facing are they like driving while they are interacting with your application through the voice or something like that um so yeah so that made me learn a, a lot throughout that process this is just an example but then there was another thing that was like really really um important for me um for my career was that one thing that you that you learn while you're trying to set up your own solo indie project is that most of the work that you would be doing is not about um recording or composing music it's about making the world pay attention to your music because there's a lot of stuff out there and um i i i even remember reading a book called the uh, something like the 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 indie band survival guide or something like that where they really focused on that item get ready to be really good at marketing your music and one of the things that i learned throughout that journey making my my song heard in in radios in the us or sending it to to podcasts and and radio show hosts and and the sort was that um i wasn't used to do that to be like to 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 contact people um that i didn't know from anywhere and and ask for for their help uh, for free essentially um and this was something that was new for me and it made me realize how being involved in a community can make everyone um um together grow themselves you know and and i think that i wouldn't be as involved as i am nowadays in the testing community if i hadn't learned this when i was uh doing uh that thing with my solo uh music project uh, a few years ago because it really made me learn the 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 importance and 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 the fact that it's an option for you to reach out to people and and see if they are they're willing to work with you or not So speaking of which uh I think that's a good a good point to move on to your first song pick which I believe is one of yours. Yeah it is. So tell us about it. Yeah so um this is January Cool. Um it was probably one of the 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 most su- successful songs I had also because at the time I was ta- I was writing the song I was discussing um an idea with a friend of mine who is a designer and to create a video for a song which ended up being this song where essentially it's just like um driving through my hometown of Lisbon back in Portugal and then uh, while the sun is coming up and then seeing how the the how the city uh, changes as you're driving in fast forward um and and how it and how it becomes um more vivid so it it was just like an, an impressionistic thing um and um so yeah so uh, 
the, the end result was pretty cool and I, I even got gave me the opportunity to engage with people from from um from podcasts and from blogs that uh were like talking about lisbon and more from like a um sharing the city to the world perspective and they found the video very interesting and it's like a way of cross marketing your thing because they're interested in your video but at the same time you're making your song reach a wider audience and getting more more people that that enjoy it um so yeah call me with your So that was January Cool by Marty Was Right. We'll never get to know who Marty is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, as much as I'd love to just geek out about making music um, for the next half an hour, we should probably talk about testing since this is a testing podcast. Yeah. So one of the things that you're passionate about is risk storming. Now, I don't think everyone necessarily will know what risk storming is. So uh, since you're a fan of it, why don't you uh, tell us a bit about it? Yeah, sure. So risk storming, um, it's something that was, um, as far as I know, created by Baron Vandal and Marcel Gellin. Uh, sorry if I, if I didn't pronounce the, those names exactly right. Um, and essentially, it's based on the test sphere cards that were also created uh, by Baron, as far as I know, and advertised through Ministry of Testing. Um, essentially, it's an exercise, a brainstorming exercise that is focused on risks. And in such an exercise, a team collectively will look at a system or look at a feature or a project or something like that and uh, come up with quality, the most important quality aspects for that specific feature or, or system, um, discuss the risks that exist uh, inside each quality aspect, and then come up with um, what I like to call um, risk mitigation ideas from patterns, heuristics, and I don't remember the third category, but, but it's something along those terms. So what do you get out of it personally? Well, um, at the beginning of the year, um, uh, back where I work, um, risk, I started really thinking about risk. And um, quality owners, in, in so my specific role, were highly like driven by risk. And one thing that had been nagging me was that uh, a lot of people will talk about risk, but I didn't see um, nothing concrete about how you should assess risk. How do you grasp it? How do you measure it, let's say? And so I started, get, uh, I, I started to get interested in, on the subject. Of course, that I was already involving in the whole testing community, um, looking at the, the stuff that existed in Ministry of Testing, and I had heard about risk storming. Um, I was a speaker this year at Test Bash Brighton. I knew that Baron would be there. So I essentially, like you were saying before, I just nagged 
barren <laughs> until he 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 explained to me everything and gave me like a mini workshop so that I could understand the concepts. I bought a TestSphere car deck and then I just came back home and I started experimenting with it because I really thought that it had a potential um, in in our teams where I work for us to uh, be better and more and and more and faster at assessing risk. So I conducted my first risk storming session with with a team at um, at at the office uh, where I was the facilitator, of course. Um, it went pretty well. That allowed me to then even um, share my experience with Baron and Marcel, and they gave me their their own advice. So there you go. The community can always help you, and will be. And they were like really interested in knowing how I was applying the concept. Um, it led to a, another experiment, and then that led to the third experiment. And uh, we're in December now, and I'm I'm pretty sure I'm, I will end the year with nine or ten risk storming sessions inside of my company because people have become like uh, really um, uh, they they have seen that there's value behind this, and the out the, the output that comes from a risk storming session is really interesting. So, how have they gone? Like, what are the positives, negatives? Well, the positives is that they people really up until then people usually would just do brainstorming sessions to think about risk and and think since you are using when you are doing risk storming and you are taking advantage of the test for your car deck, um, you are doing a more focused brainstorm where you have uh, like this general knowledge uh, that comes from the community that's expressed in the cards, stuff that you could forget, but you're not forgetting at that moment because you are looking at the cards and making decisions on what's important. Um, so that makes like the exercise much more um, valuable and also faster. Uh, the thing that that usually is, is a, a bigger challenge is that um, at the end, usually we believe that it's not complete. You just come up with some risk mitigation ideas. And so usually teams are always like, okay, I want action items out of this exercise. So I always book a follow-up session where we look at everything that came out of a risk storming session, the risks, the, the risk mitigation ideas, and then, okay, team, now let's work together and set like a list of very concrete action items of things that you could or could not do. So there you have it. I think that's an important factor as well is that, that identifying the risks and having the discussions around risks, that's the start of the conversation and the process. And I think some people sort of, end up in a situation where well a lot a lot of people don't really talk about risk anymore generally which is concerning but some people end up in that situation where you know you end up identifying a bunch of risks you throw them into some sort of spreadsheet or register um but then it's not connected to actually the testing and the thought processes that go in around features that you're implementing so i think it's really cool that you're kind of using that as an opportunity to then feed into other discussions and other activities afterwards. Absolutely. And one of the things that's really, really important is that it's also an opportunity for all of the different areas inside each team. So I'm talking about developers, I'm talking about um, um, experience experts or user experience experts, product managers or product owners. Um, they all come together and they all have a discussion around this. And that's what makes it like really, really valuable. And one of the things that I find uh, I find really interesting is that 
a lot of times when I introduce a risk storming session for the first time in a team, uh, the product manager will come up to me or, or the product owner um, uh, will come to me and he will say, hey, Joel, um, is this something I should participate in or do you need me there? And I'm like, yes, definitely. Because usually uh, there's a lot of haha moments when you're doing risk storming where the developers um, have some assumptions and they will take one quality aspect and say, oh, this isn't relevant for us. And then all of a sudden the product owner comes up, he reaches for the card and he, he tells them, are you crazy? This is one of the main things in the whole project. <laughs> and then everyone was, oh, really? We didn't know that. So it's great for, for to see people um, letting go of their assumptions and, and, and figuring out stuff about the project that they're about to embark on that they didn't know before. Well, I know I know a few other people um, have gotten a, gotten a lot from risk storming as well. So, um, and we've had a few articles and community stories written about it. So I'll probably share those in the in the links below as well. Um, but we should uh, probably move on. And why don't you tell us a little bit about your second song pick? So yeah, this is a song by a Canadian band called Always, um, Archie Marry Me. And um, in the past few years, Always has been like one of the, my main obsessions in terms of music. So this is an, a, an indie rock band. I'm, I'm very much an indie musician as well. So, um, and, and the thing that I really like about them is that they're, they're the natural successors of, of this Scottish band that I, I really like called Camera Obscura. And, and you can see the similarities. I really like the fact that the, the singers in both, um, in both bands, uh, Molly Rankin in, uh, in Always and Tracy Ann Campbell from Camera, Camera Obscura have a way uh, of, of writing songs and writing lyrics where they have like this fondness for the pathetic. <laughs> like these, these were actually their words, not mine. And so I really like the motto, that, 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 that sort of, of, of feeling that all of these songs get. So, yeah, so there you go. Marry Me by Always and not Alvea's as I was reading it earlier, which was really confusing me. Um, cool. Okay. So you're speaking at Test Bash Brighton next year, which is awesome. So yes. good. You're coming back again for more. Yeah. I'm really excited about that. Um, are you intending to come to some of the, the earlier bits or are you just there for the, for the talks? Uh, I'll probably be there for the workshop day. Awesome. So I don't want to, uh, I don't want to spoil it for everyone, um, but could you give us uh, a taster of what you're going to be talking about? Because um, I think this is a, a contentious topic for some people. <laughs> it is. So the name of the talk is, should we just delete it? And it's about deleting tests. Most spe more specifically, it's about when you look at automation, um, at automated test sets, and you look at those tests that have been around for a while and you 
maybe you're looking at a test that is failing. You don't exactly understand what it does or why it is failing. And this, this question pops up in your head. And one of the things that I've, I've noticed throughout my career is that people, everyone, humans, have a natural tendency to uh, avoid the leading tests and to resist the leading tests. Let's put it like that. That is uh, something that's uh, tied into loss aversion, which is like something very humane. And it's been research in, in, in the psychology uh, domain where uh, it's a cognitive bias where all of us are usually uh, more afraid of losing something than to gain something new. It's like if you want to reduce that, that human thing, it's like um, it is better to not lose $5 than to find $5 in, in the street, which is a bit strange. It's, it's that sort of, of behavior we all have. Um, and this loss aversion, it's, it's even something that if you look around, um, companies like Netflix take, take advantage of it when you, they like um, put out that, that, the, that thing where, come, try Netflix out. Uh, you have one month free, and at the end of the month, if you don't want to continue, you can just cancel. They're betting on your loss aversion when after a month you've been looking at awesome shows and movies and you're, and when you come when it when it comes the time to renew your subscription, you start thinking, oh, I don't want to lose this because now I've grown used to it. So then you just subscribe and become a Netflix customer. Um, so and and so this will be like the initial model for the talk um, that we all ha will have this natural tendency. Uh, about where we resist the leading tests. But then um, there's a lot of things about how you should evaluate the value that the test has or not uh, versus the cost that it's taking you because a lot of times people will just think about the cost that it, it took in terms of developing the test itself. Um, and, and so, yeah, I will go into those fields and, and try to, to go into some key ideas for people to take home with. For me personally, it always goes back to risk. Yeah. So within automation and testing, Richard and I always sort of say, like, you can look at your automated tests and say, and ask yourself, what risks are these mitigating? And if you can't answer that question, then there's, there's a big question mark hanging over the value of those tests. And that's a good place to sort of start that conversation. And, you know, there's, there's a very important point in what you're saying is that uh, from my experience as well, the, the less you know about a test, the more resistant you will be in deleting it because it's mm. like you're deleting the unknown. So yeah. you're really afraid of doing that. And usually that's the thing you should work on. Let's make it known and not an unknown. And that's it. And that goes back to intent being clear um, in terms of what you're your automated checks are intended for and making sure that that's clear in the stuff that you write um but also ensuring that you've tied it to some concrete risks in the first place yeah cool okay well uh why don't we spend a little time talking about your third song which is uh, also a personal favorite of mine and one i had to study extensively for a levels so i know this song inside and out <laughs> Yeah, so my third song is by The Kinks, uh, Waterloo Sunset. So it's uh, a 60s song. I'm really, really into 60s music and 60s rock music, essentially because my, my father um, is a, a big uh, 
he's not a musician, but he, he was a, he's a fan of music. And so, and he grew up as a teenager in the 60s and he heard all of those bands, the Beatles, uh, the Kinks, the Rolling Stones, a lot, of, a, a lot of bands coming out of Britain. And essentially, these were the bands that uh, made, made me grow as a musician because I was a kid uh, in the car or at home listening to whatever my father was listening to because he, he was a record collector. He is a record collector. Um, and so, and I really like this specific song by the Kinks first, because the Kinks are just badass, and usually <laughs> they're not like the most well-known band out of the 60s, not, not as known as the Rolling Stones or the Beatles, but they're like a really big influence on a lot of artists that, that have come up uh, ever since. Um, and Waterloo Sunset is like this really, really beautiful song because it's, it's like, it's an impressionistic song. It's, it doesn't tell you a story, but it, it rather, uh, talks about a feeling that uh, the composer Ray Davis, if I, I think that's his name, um, that a feeling that he had with that specific place, Waterloo, uh, because of a lot of different things he experienced throughout the, of his life um, in that specific place. Um, so, so yeah, that's that's that that is why it it it, it it's kind of like the representation of '60s music. And, and the way of composing songs that's really important to me. So it, it had to be one of, I had to pick one of one song from the 60s to be one of the five for this episode. So yeah. I think you chose well. Yeah. that was Waterloo Sunset by the Kinks. So I mentioned at the start of the podcast, and you've touched on it as well, this role uh, that you have as a quality owner, which uh, I've spoken to a few other people about being in the quality space, being owners, being coaches. And it feels very much like the the vanguard, the sort of future of testing for some people. What's like, what does your role look like? Well, so yeah, um, and this was, uh, I even have a talk on this topic. Uh, that I delivered at Agile Testing Days a couple months ago. Um, and and actually, there's a video of the talk because I presented it at a meetup prior to the conference. So then people can just check the, the, the video as well. We'll include the link. Um, and the role is highly influenced by the modern testing principles. As soon as you start seeing what I'm talking about, you probably recognize that for people that that already are are uh, familiarized with with the modern testing principles, and it's really ties into the whole team approach to testing. And 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 more than testing, I like to say quality. Um, so us quality owners were team enablers. We're there to make the team um, better and and 
capable at quality uh, matters. And uh, for us, all of that starts with risk, as, as you probably noticed. I've talked about risk a lot throughout this conversation. So we're really obsessed about risk and we believe that risk is like at the heart and at the nature of everything. Um, but then we do a, a bunch of different things, things that allow uh, teams to conduct quality activities. And, a lot, and of course, that a lot of that um, goes into testing. So we coach people, developers, and even non-developers on exploratory testing or in automation. We give them structure. We give them guidelines. Um, we build frameworks uh, for the team uh, when they want to overcome some automation challenges, for instance. So as you can see, we're not like um, we're not like the only ones that are building tests. A lot of of the the the, the, the part of the work where we're building our automated tests is done by, by developers themselves, but we're there to make sure that they have the tools and the ways to accomplish the, those goals. Um, and so, yeah, so it's, it's, it's a quality coaching role, but a lot of times it can go into different things that, um, that, that are not exactly coaching, but are more like of, uh, are more in the enablement domain. So how have you found um, taking something like modern testing and those principles that have been crafted through years of experience of the people who've built that and then you've taken those principles and then used them yourself? Like, have you found that, that, that kind of what's stated in those principles and the ideals of it match pretty closely to what you see day to day or have you had to tweak things to work for you? Like basically how has like modern testing worked for you in, in the wild? Well, um, so yeah, that's, that's a very interesting point. Um, I believe that on one part where uh, I'm lucky because uh, we at my company, I've been here for a while. Uh, so I already have on and off, I've been here for like 11 years. So I've seen how things have progressed throughout the years. And when we got reached that stage where we, had already uh, these ideas in some form. We are were already believing in whole team approach to testing, on uh, changing things on on uh, on that path. Um, we made a decision to bring in someone in that would lead the quality group inside of my organization that used to work for Microsoft and used to work with the people <laughs> uh, that created the modern testing principles in the. So, so yeah, so I, I, I'm pretty lucky on that sense because um, essentially my boss knows what he's talking about, you know, but of course that every time, I mean, organizations will always be different and you always have to adjust things because um, you'll always find a group of individuals and tech setup where things can be, uh, where some things are stronger than others and you have to adjust the strategy that you have uh, when applying these sorts of principles. Of course, that personally, in, in the way of applying these ideas um, um, in, in, in a professional setup, of course, there's, there's a few challenges that I believe a lot of people will find if they want to do this sort of thing. One of, the, one of them is about a, a sort of skepticism uh, towards the whole team responsibility and having quality coaches around. Um, and the thing that that 
I learned, one of the, the key things that I learned, and I even go into those in my talk, is that um, it, it really helps if you uh, bring people in uh, to the decision-making process. So, okay, so now I am the quality owner. I am a strategist. I am the coach. Um, let's not make the things that I do or the things that I recommend uh, be just driven by me, but let's like interview people from the team and understand in their own words, what they believe would be the biggest challenges that they find whenever they have to do testing or they have to look at quality or whatever, and then take those into account to enrich the process of, um, of, of, of whatever you'll be doing to improve life quality wise for the company. Um, another thing is about the whole team um, responsibility. Uh, of course, that people that have been used to um, s seeing this uh, as, as a separate thing where you have developers and you have testers and all of a sudden developers should also be testing, even though you all can also have testers at the same time. Um, and they, they can even be, be a bit resistant about the idea, but I believe that you, you, you can, you always have to give people time and you always have to start slow and grow progressively. So you shouldn't go into a team and all of a sudden say, Hey, this is the way we're going to do this. And all of you will be start we'll start to do this uh, f uh, from, to, from now on. Uh, you have to start small. You have to start with a few people that, that are on board with you. Make them um, create the first examples of, of the test that they, that they want to build, whatever, and then progressively grow and, and, and have people realize the value of what you're bringing to the table. So I have more questions that I would like to ask you around this, but um, I think we should maybe take a pause and talk mm -hmm. about your fourth song pick first. So why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, so uh, my fourth song is by Arcade Fire, and it's called We Used to Wait. Um, Arcade Fire is a very, very important uh, band for me. It's one of my favorite bands ever. And it's it's kind of... I, I Usually I say that Arcade Fire... Um, um, made made current music uh, um, valid for me again because I was a teenager, uh, I, or let's say I, I was in like my seven. I was seventeen, eighteen when I was in high school in the the late nineties, and um, in those days, uh, this, the the type of music that was mainstream wasn't exactly the type of music that I liked. So a lot of new metal um, bands and you had that whole movement with Limp Biscuits and, <laughs> and and those bands. And of course, I, I have respect for, for some of those acts, but it was really uh, the sort of music that I wasn't interested in. So I was like, okay, so maybe I'm, I'm, I'm already like, um, uh, I, I will never enjoy current music anymore again. <laughs> I will always be that person that just likes grunge and alternative rock and sixties bands, and I will, I will, I will, I will never progress in terms of of, of liking new music. But then, uh, in around uh, around twenty twenty oh four, um, Arcade Fire come up with with their first album, and I was like, this is it. This is one of the my favorite albums ever. This band is amazing. This band represents everything that I like about music. And I've been a big, big fan ever since. And I, every time they come up, they come up to Portugal to, 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 for a gig, I'm, I always try to be there and, and in the audience. And I really like uh, the song We Used to Wait 
because essentially it it has a, a really interesting uh, point uh, uh, idea to tell, which is um, it's about our relationship with technology and how that has changed with the internet age. Um, the the name of the song we used to wait really is getting at. Uh, the fact that uh, before there was any internet or mainstream internet, you had to wait for things. I mean, if you wanted to contact something, someone, you would have to tell, send them a letter and it would take weeks to get a reply or maybe even you wouldn't get a reply and you wouldn't know why. And and nowadays we're just like impatient. We can't wait for anything, you know? And so uh, sometimes we, we, we wait five minutes for a reply for a text message and we're like, this is bullshit. And, uh, <laughs> and, that's, and, and maybe we should like um, look into the way we are looking at those things. Um, so yeah, I really like this song because I really think it has a, a, a really interesting message. We used to wait by Arcade Fire. So, talking a bit more about this this quality coaching role and modern testing, and generally being an advocate for quality in teams, what would you recommend? Like, have you got any links, resources, any ideas that they might want to focus on? Yeah, uh, one thing that that the quality ownership for us um, it 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 encompasses more than just testing. And we believe that being a quality professional um, now can entail other domains. Um, because as I've said before, we're highly driven by risk. And once you get the risks nailed down, then you have to mitigate those risks or not. Um, there are various ways of mitigating risk. One of, the one of the most frequent ones that you should use, of course, is testing. But there are other ways where you can also mitigate risk where you're not exactly doing testing. Um, so the way you release your product, uh, are you like the, the feedback loop that you have over the, the features that you're building? That's something you should start look, looking into because if you are, if you are able to release, uh, to release code faster, uh, than before, guess what? You're also mitigating risk in some way or mi mitigating some risks because all of a sudden a problem that goes out there, you can quickly uh, fix and overcome it because you're really uh, good at reacting to things. So when you go into this, uh, CICD and DevOps for us is something that's uh, under the quality domain. So we as quality owners also go into, into DevOps fields and analyzing pipelines for our teams 
So the, uh, understanding how the release process is looking up, where the bottlenecks are, trying to reduce feedback loops to, to shorten feedback loops so that, um, so that people are able to uh, learn as quickly as possible about what they are about to release or what they have already released. Um, and of course, that when you're, we're talking about these topics, then observability, which is like a really hot topic right now, is also really important. Because if you want to understand how um, the things that you are building are impacting your users and the world at large, you have to be really good at collecting data and really good at knowing how to look and analyze that data. So observability is also something that we see as one of the areas where we must develop the most as quality owners right now. I think it's interesting, yeah, how you're talking about it. it, it. It's, it's more than just the testing role. It is the appreciation of, of, of the whole life cycle and um, from the point of inception to the point of delivery and beyond. Yeah. I think sometimes, yeah, it can be very easy to sort of see these different things as isolated um, activities or um, isolated ideals. But actually, yeah, the way you talk about things like DevOps, fitting into this quality mindset as well and bringing those sort of those cultures and those ideals together because ultimately i think we're all you know we're all aiming for the same thing mm-hmm. yeah team but it's just we, we kind of best way to put it we're kind of all trying to sort of solve the problem in our own different ways which yeah. have a certain level of uh, similarity and congruency between them yes absolutely and do you have like just as in cold hard links cold hard references is there anything you would give a shout out to that um that helped you um well for instance uh, i was just talking about observability right now um and one of the things that i've always find is that it's it's hard to get into this topic and over the past year or so i've been involved with in discussions over what observability means to us uh, testers. I remember being um, at a conference where even Lisa Crispin was discussing this topic in a, in a in a group conversation. Where how exactly should I go into observability? Uh, do I need to like become uh, uh, a data analyst to be able to go into this? Um, and one of the things that I found that was like really really good was um, uh, at Agile Testing Days this year. Um, Abby Bangzer was one of the keynote speakers talking about observability and she did like this amazing job of making the topic and the fundamental ideas of observability accessible to people that didn't know much about it. Um, so um, unfortunately that talk wasn't recorded but there's a lot of uh, transcriptions on Twitter from 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 the, the time when she delivered. And I would definitely um, invite people to look at those Twitter transcripts and also at the slides because it's enough for you to understand where she's getting at so that you can learn like the key ideas be- behind these um, new observability uh, principles. Cool. Yeah, well, Abby's just straight up awesome. Yeah. <laughs> um. <laughs> she's amazing. <laughs> And uh, I know she's doing, yeah, she's doing some excellent work in the observability space. And um, I, I doubt this will be the last time we see um, her speaking about this. Um, so hopefully, we'll, we'll, hopefully there'll be more shareable bits and pieces. Um, but yeah, I, I second that. It, like, I'd just go see 
anything that that Abby's speaking about or doing <laughs> training on. Yeah. She's just she's awesome. Anyway, let's uh, let's um, wrap this up and uh, tell us a little bit about your final song pick, and then we'll talk about your book. Yeah. So my final song pick is LCD Sound System with Someone Great. Um, and I'm going to be honest. I would either at at as the fifth, I would either put like a '90s band because I was highly influenced as a musician by grunge and by alternative rock. Um, but uh, I ended up picking a more recent act, LCD Sound System, because um, even though I'm pretty much into rock and indie rock, um, I. Also, sometimes I'm fascinated about some electronic acts that are around. And I even remember um, a few years back seeing, I believe it was one of the Gallagher brothers, probably Neil Gallagher, mentioning that over the past 20 years, he's seen like this uh, amazing progression in the electronic space that he hasn't seen in rock music, where um, electronic bands have been pushing boundaries much further than rock musicians have who are basically recycling old ideas, even though sometimes you can recycle old ideas in a really awesome way. And for me, uh, one of the acts that I, I respect the most and that I'm a biggest fan of is LCD Sound System. Uh, this specific song is, is Someone Great is a song about death. So it's, um, so it's like a serious topic. Um, and yeah, I, I, I just really like this song. That was Someone Great by LCD Sound System. So, uh, Shrao, it's been a pleasure having you on the podcast and having a chat with you. Thank you. Um, I'm definitely going to check out your project stuff. And in the art of shameless plugging, I will send you links to my stuff as well. <laughs> okay, that's nice. Uh, <laughs> then we can uh, maybe compare notes. and, and yeah. uh, But all that's left to do is to ask you what is going to be your book that you're going to take to the island with you and why. Okay, so the book that I selected was A Practical Guide to Testing in DevOps by Katrina Cloakey. This is a book that's been around for a while now. Um, I saw Katrina Cloakey at a keynote at Agile Testing Days 2017. Um, right then, I just got hooked on the, the ideas that she was putting out. I knew that she had come up with the book, and I got it. And over the past two years, it's been like a, a really useful resource for me whenever um, we are discussing something and I'm like, okay, I remember seeing something about that on Katrina's book and I go back and then I find um, ideas and, and, and items that I can reference to when I'm trying to make a point to other people inside my organization. So I believe that it's a really, really interesting book for testers as not as... A, 
it, it doesn't go uh, really into uh, uh, into deep on subjects, but it covers a lot of different subjects and tells you what are the things like the links or the other books that you should go, should go check out if you want to learn more about each specific subject. So it's really uh, a very useful resource to have in your tool bed. That's it. Like Brilliant. That. Cool. Well, uh, we'll add that to our book list, and I'll put a link to the um, to our book list yep. um, below, and also um, a link to our Spotify playlist where all our previous guests' um, tr tracks choices have um, been added in as well. It's um, with uh, you know over thirty podcasts, it's turning into quite an eclectic playlist. Which yeah. And now even I will will be in that uh, playlist yes. because I'm I'm oh. on Spotify, so you can add me in there. <laughs> Fantastic! Yeah, uh, brilliant. Well, um, that's all the time we have. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, always good for an opportunity to sort of ask how how can people get in touch with you and um, do you what what events other than obviously we spoke about Test Bash Brighton, but do you have any other events talks coming up um, for t end of 2019, 2020? Yeah, so um, I'll also be speaking at the European Testing Conference uh, in February in Amsterdam. Um, so, and it's an amazing conference. It's, I mean, Test Bash Brighton, Test Bash uh, in general, and the European Testing Conference uh, are always two of the, the conferences that I recommend to everyone. So, please do check the the program out. Um, and if people want to get in touch with me. Um, just uh i'm on twitter i'm pretty active on twitter um you can just send me a message public or not my direct messages are open so i I'll, i'm always available there to to share and to discuss things with people brilliant well all that's left for me to say is um thank you again for coming on the podcast it was my pleasure and it's uh goodbye from me and goodbye from Shrao. see you all Test Design and Discs is brought to you by Ministry of Testing. Written and produced by Mark Winteringham. Created by Neil Studd. Theme music by Green Day. Follow us on Twitter at Testers Island. Oh, I'm sorry. I have to, um, I have to restart the okay? game. Uh, because I didn't remember the name of the book. <laughs> so I, I was trying to get to that note. I'm sorry. Okay. It was that influential. Yeah, no, no. But it, I know it was Katrina Cloakies, <laughs> but I didn't remember the title. Okay, so I'll restart.